I entitled today's message, The Dividing Line. It's part seven of our Matthew series that will be going out and it will carry us throughout the rest of the year as we're going to do it verse by verse and line by line. And I entitled the subtitle here, A Contrast for Eternity. And I want to begin with one concept. And the concept is that within the church and outside the church, we are under fire under the concept of is there absolute truth? It's been going on for years. It's this whole postmodern clash thing going on. But unfortunately, people are messing with the gospel. They're messing with what Jesus said. Today, we are going to come head to head with what Jesus really said. And it's probably going to blow your socks off. As a matter of fact, if you are not rattled, you are not paying attention. Because today will really, really kind of get in your face and cause a little bit of difficulty for you if you really understand what Jesus is saying. However, I'm not so sure we fully understand the impact of what we are reading in the Sermon on the Mount. And so to kind of drive that home, I want to start with a quote by John Stott. John Stott said this on the top of your page. The claims of Jesus were indeed put forward so naturally modestly and indirectly that many people never even notice them either they are true or jesus was suffering from what c.s lewis called a rampant megalomania the only alternative is to take jesus at his word and his claims at their face value in this case we must respond to his sermon on the mount with deadly seriousness for here is his picture of God's alternative society. These are the standards, the values, and the priorities of the kingdom of God. For he is the Lord of the counterculture. And here's why I think this is so important. There's this concept that has been around since day one that you can pick and choose Christianity and pieces of. Absolutely ridiculous and absurd. You cannot pull apart Christianity and take the pieces you like. Christianity does not afford you that option. Jesus Christ never meant to give you that choice. It is a cohesive whole. You either take it all or you reject it all. You cannot parse it out, piece it out and say, oh, I love this about Christianity and not this. That is not accurate. We must understand that what Jesus says is it, period. There is absolute truth, and it's what God says, period. You don't mess around with that. So the question then responds back, and it says, well, wait a second. Why is it one way? Why is it organized like this? Why do we have to engage with it only the way that Jesus said? Well, very simply, it's the fill in the blank in front of you. And it is this, the Savior dictates the terms. The Savior dictates the terms. In other words, whoever shows up to save you and rescue you gets to pick how he's going to rescue you. And what we have made it is so silly is it now has become when you're drowning in the water and someone throws you a life ring, you go, I don't like styrofoam. I guess you're just going to have to die then. Because that's all I'm throwing you. Okay, we are making this stuff something that it's not, and we must re-engage with it afresh. It is my personality to want to remove all tension for you. 
It is my personality to engage with this morning's message and try to explain it away and make you feel better. That I cannot do. God will not allow me to do that this morning. Therefore, I'm going to be dropping all of Jesus' words incomplete and allow you to wrestle with them in your heart. For I believe anything other than that would be unfair. You ready to do this? Let's grab our Bibles, dive into Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will get a Bible to where you're at. Now, I know that some of the team is still back there. I see Flavius is back there handing out Bibles. Keep your hands up and we will get one right to where you're at. So I see that uh, we have uh, Donna and Jean are going to be diving back in here and trying to help you out. Let's get some Bibles over to you. And we can begin. If you're not familiar with the Bible, by all means, raise your hand because I give you the page number. That makes it a lot easier. So keep your hands up and we will get one over to you. There's one back there, Flavius, and one up here up front. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 is where we're going to begin. I'm going to begin just by reading the first two verses and then we'll dive into the word today. Jesus in this portion said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. That is on page 685 sure sounds simple, doesn't it? If you have ever prayed in your life, you know that it's not quite that easy. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we're not going to understand this stuff. We're not going to have the eyes to see. We're not going to have the heart to discern what in the world you are talking about. We're going to be left wondering, is there any way to be saved without you supernaturally coming in and giving us the solution? I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and that you would open up your word that the struggle that we have is not in understanding but in wrestling with the spirit that we have. Lord, would you make us into men and women of God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask and it will be given to you. Indeed, we ask for what we wish. Seek and you will find, and we seek for what we miss. Knock and the door will be opened to you, for we knock on what we feel shut out of. Is it as simple as that? Ask, seek, knock. As a matter of fact, the first thing we have to understand is these are not simple phrases such as, hey, I prayed for that 15 years ago. God didn't do anything. Oh, well. These are in Greek present imperatives, which means continued requests. They are on a continuous action. In other words, don't just ask once, but keep on asking. Do not just seek once, but continue the process of searching and seeking. And do not merely knock once, but in a repeated pattern, knock that the door would be open to you. That we know already from the grammar. Ask Seek, knock. Then it gives almost like this blanket statement of a promise that you're looking at and going, I don't get it because that's not how it's working in my world. And what is the promise? Well, it seems to say for everyone who asks, receives he who seeks, finds and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Is that true? Do you get everything you pray for? No. And that is the dilemma. How do we resolve reality 
with what we're reading in Scripture? Well, I would tell you that the answer to that is in the fact that many passages of Scripture come with loaded terms. To us, we don't understand. In the original world where it was spoken, they understood better, but still not perfect. There are things that we have to consider the whole counsel of God to figure out. This is one of those. Let me give you another example. In Romans 10:9, it seems to suggest that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It makes this very blanket statement. And yet you're going to find out that on its surface value, it will be contradicted by the very message I'm going to teach you this morning. You go, well, that's not fair. Why would you just say something like that? Because the terms are loaded. For example, what does believe mean? If it says believe in your heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, does it mean believe the facts? Clearly it cannot. For why? Demons know the facts pretty darn well. Do they know Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. Are they saved? No. Clearly it doesn't mean that. Because the term believe is loaded, it means not only believe the facts, but live as if they are true. Trust in them and put yourself in submitting underneath that truth that demons do not do so obviously we deal with some loaded terms here we're dealing with loaded terms as well ask seek knock the whole concept of prayer i could spend all year long talking to you about what prayer is and is not and still not have enough time we're not going to do that this morning but we definitely need to find out some parameters Otherwise, we go home frustrated. In order to make his point and drive it home, verse 9, he begins, he gives us two scenarios to kind of make us look at it and go, well, of course I would answer your prayer for good gifts. I'm a great dad. That's what I do. Verse 9 says this. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, to us, that sounds like a rather random statement. Why are we talking about rocks and bread? Well, in Matthew, we've already talked about rocks and bread once. When Jesus was in the desert, what was one of his temptations? Turn these stones into bread. Rocks and bread have already been tied in together in Matthew, and here we have it again. Why? Well, in our American world, our bread is foofy. We have big old huge puffy bread of every variety and every flavor and every coloring. Whereas in the old school ancient world, you had gnarly looking rock looking bread. That was it. You got a round loaf, kind of looks like a big old rock. That's it. All right. So it was not all that extreme to go, if your child asked for bread, would you slip out and give him a rock just to mess with his head? The answer to that is clearly what? No, of course not. You wouldn't do that. Only horrible monster parents would do that. Right here, kid, gnaw on this. He loses all his teeth chewing on a rock. That's just horrible. It's kind of like torture. So the obvious answer is, no, of course, your father wouldn't do that. And and as we know, the Galilean diet was a lot about fish and bread. So you're going to keep seeing those come up over and over and over. We've already handled bread. So let's do the fish thing. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? Now, when Luke tells this story, He adds in a different element. He said, or if your son asks for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? And the concept is, if he asks you for something innocent, would you give him something dangerous? The answer to that is, of course, no. But this one may have a different nuance. 
The word translated there for snake or serpent is a very wide open to translation word. And some commentators said, I think it means eel. You're like, why are we arguing about this? Who cares? Well, because they have different meanings. Here's why. Eels are unclean. Fish are not. So what does it mean to a Jew? To us, we're like, I don't care whether it's an eel or a fish, whatever. Ah, if you ask for something pleasing to God, would God then hand you something unclean or displeasing to the Lord? The answer to that is no. Now, it moves on. If you then, though you are evil, verse 11, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I'm going to dissect this passage about a million different ways, but here's what it must mean. Number one, God is good. And if in your prayer life you have created a formula where God is not good, your formula is broken because God is always good. If you say, yet here I stand or here I sit with cancer ravaging my body, God doesn't care. Your formula is broken. God is good and God wants to bless his children that you cannot argue with. It's absolutely stated clearly in scripture that he wants to meet your needs. If he does not, there is a darn good reason why. And that is where we must go into other passages of scripture to examine. First of all, let's begin with the obvious. It says that he is the father of giving good gifts, good gifts. That's different than bad gifts. All right. We're all tracking. All right. Fantastic. Now, let's start out. If you are not a parent, I need you to imagine with me that you are a parent. I don't think you'll have a hard time following parents. Do your kids always ask for what's good for them? No, of course they do not. As a matter of fact, in my household, we have a standard ritual. I put my girls to bed. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And every time we go to bed, they have a shocking revelation that they are now hungry. (laughs) Which means I'm going to try to put off this sleeping thing for a little bit longer. And almost always they go, Daddy, can I have a snack? Right? And you can imagine if I went back and I asked them and I said, well, what would you like to eat? What do you think they're going to say? They're going to select the most sugary, most caffeine laced thing in the household because that's what tastes best. And they will always ask for that, which is harmful to them. Now, as a good dad, do I give them what they want? No, of course I don't do that for that would be harming the child. As a good parent, you sift their requests. We all agreed on that. When God does it to us, we call him unloving. Why is that? God is sifting our requests. Why? Because my wife and I have a standard response. Hey, daddy, mom, can I have a snack before uh, bedtime? We always go, yeah, absolutely. You can have a cheese stick. Okay, now to a kid, cheese stick. Are you kidding me? How lame is that? (laughs) But we know that that is something that they happen to like okay, and it's not going to mess up their sleep pattern. So they want cookies. They want ice cream. They want all these things. But with good parents, we go in and say, no, here's what's going to happen to you if I give that to you. 
You all of a sudden are going to get this huge sugar high, this big old rush. You're going to flip flop in your bed. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to get all upset and bent about it. You're going to get a bad night's sleep. You're going to wake up in the morning grumpy. You're going to go to school, be a headache for me. You're going to irritate all your friends. Now no one wants to play with you. How about that? They have no idea. They never look down the road. But as good parents, what do we do? We look down the road. And our God has a better vantage point than that. He's not just looking to tomorrow. He's looking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. And he will make sure that anything he hands to you is a good gift, not a bad gift. Therefore, your prayers will always be sifted by a good father to be giving you good gifts and not bad gifts. We know that for sure. We also found out when he taught us on the Lord's prayer that he will give us our daily bread. This is talking about needs and necessities, not luxuries. Every once in a while, God will give you a bike. Every once in a while, God will give you a toy. But that's just because he's being sweet and kind to you. But he's not going to give you all the toys you want. And he will give you your necessities that much he guarantees We also learn that there's something called praying in Jesus name. You guys have heard that, right? I still do it as as, I'm totally immature. Even as being a pastor, I still use that as a tagline on all my prayers in Jesus name. Amen. That's not what it means, by the way. And yet I do it every time. I can't get away from it because I have to say the magic words. Otherwise, the prayer isn't legit, right? Isn't that why we do that? In Jesus' name means in Jesus' stead or how Jesus would pray. So it is our job when we go up to consider something to throw up to our dad as to whether or not he'll meet the need, we need to sift it to whether or not it's in God's will. Is it in alignment? Would Jesus pray that prayer? It is our job to know the word of God inside and out, to know the heart of God, so that when we present our requests, we are even sifting out garbage. Because when we consider what we're really asking for, we think, would Jesus pray that? That is in Jesus' name. When we turn to the book of James, we end up finding out that he says, you have not because you ask not. In other words, there's an element of prayer that means you have to ask. Otherwise, what? You end up with a life, as I said last week, of coincidence. You walk around life. Oh, my gosh. Check that out. I had a I had a need for a car. That's so weird because my neighbor just got a new car and he handed me his old car. How weird. What a coincidence. Oh, look at that. I was super thirsty and I happened to run into a water fountain. How what a coincidence. Oh, I really needed friends. And then someone I actually had a friend that they knew that was really looking to tie into somebody. What a coincidence. And you live lives of coincidence and God gets no glory. No, sometimes God's going to say, you know what? I'm holding out. Forget it. We're not playing the coincidence game anymore because you don't recognize I'm giving you this stuff. I will hold off until you pray for it because you're not paying attention to who's giving you good things. So he holds out. Do you realize there's a lot of prayers that are unanswered because you never asked? That's just a fact of life. Why God does it that way? I don't know. I've heard some pretty incredible stories about why he does it that way. But the bottom line is it's relational. He's trying to get us to engage with him. And so, yes, we need to ask our dad for what we need. Luke, in his story, adds another element. He said, right in the middle of this teaching, Jesus tells a story. He said, imagine you go to bed. And now in the ancient world, going to bed was a big deal. 
Why? Because you don't have electricity, you don't have running water, so everything kind of has to be shut down for the night. You bolt the door, you get everybody in bed. If one person gets up, it wakes up everybody because you're all in one central room. Then you shut out all the wicks, all the lights in the house. So trying to get up is a problem. He said, then suppose at midnight your friend comes to you and says, knocks on your door, wakes you up and says, hey, I need more bread. I just had a whole bunch of friends come over or family from out of town and I don't have anything to feed them. Can you give me and let me borrow some bread? You're going to respond. No, I've already bolted the door, shut down for the night. Ain't going to happen. He said, I tell you, you will get up and give your friend the bread, not because he's a friend, but because of his boldness and persistence. What a weird story to describe prayer. Yet Jesus tells parables like that all the time. What about the woman that kept begging the judge for justice? And eventually the judge just got wore down and said, fine, I'll do it. There's something about persistence that is necessary for prayer. Why? Is it because we have to beg our God? Listen to me. I'm totally serious. <laughs> no. Then why? Because I think we throw up prayers willy-nilly. We don't even know whether it's prayer or just hope anymore. Half the time we're like, God, please don't let this light be red. Please don't let this light be red. And we're praying for traffic lights. We're praying, God, please fire someone so I can have a promotion. You're like, what? What did you just say? And we're constantly firing prayers out all over the place. We don't even remember what we prayed anymore. There's no prayer journal. There's no memory. We're never going to give God glory because we don't even remember if we prayed about it or not. And now we can't even sort out what we were just kind of hoping for and what we prayed for. That should not be. Therefore, God says, sift it. Pray for it. Look, I didn't give it to you. Check it out. You're going to pray again. Is it that big of a deal to you? Pray it again. Pray it again. Pray it again. Are you sure you want this? Pray it again. Do not just play around with this concept. Pray for what matters. I will, re I will grant that request. Persistence is to sift your own heart, not to implore your God. We need to understand that prayer is a bit more complicated than simply a, oh, you pray it. I got a magic wand. I'm your genie. What would you like? That is incorrect. Imagine if that was true. One man was quoted as saying, if indeed God was forced to do everything I prayed for, I would never pray again, for I do not have confidence in my wisdom to ask for the right things. What would happen if everything you prayed for came true? How much stuff would you take from me? And how much would I take from you? We have a good father and that good father saves us from ourselves. Amen. Amen. We move on to verse 12. Seemingly kind of out of nowhere, Jesus drops the golden rule. And you would assume that there would be much more fanfare about this because it's been a big deal in history. We even have a name for it, the golden rule. But it basically goes like this. So in everything, meaning just as your father is good, be good to others. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You would say, well, that is in every great religion of the world. That's nothing new. Jesus must have borrowed it from someone. No. Is it found, at least in some form, in most major religions? Absolutely. It's everywhere. It is in all sorts of books and wise teachings and everything else. But there's one dramatic difference. 
In every other case, it's in the negative form. You go, what do you mean? What's the negative form? The negative form is do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. That's different. Jesus is the only one that puts the positive spin on it, which is do unto others as you would want them to do to you. And you go, well, what's the difference? A lot. One can be monitored by law. In other words, I can tell you what not to do. Don't punch people in the face. You don't want people to punch you in the face. Are we all clear on that? It's not that hard. So we have rules about punching people in the face. However, law cannot tell you, consider in your heart the atmosphere you want to live in. Think of good and loving things that you can do to promote out to people on the outside so that you can create an ethos that you want them to create for you. Only love can do that. Jesus goes a whole different route with it. He said, if you do that, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, soul and strength, if you love your neighbor as yourself, on that hangs all the law. And you would nail it down. If you love me, you will naturally fulfill my commandments, Jesus said. And we turn to verse 13. While you're turning there, where do we get the name Golden Rule? Well, apparently one commentator didn't have a life and he sorted it out. And he said that there was a Roman emperor named Alexander Severus in AD 222. He served till 235. He was a non-believing man, but he thought it was so cool that Jesus had come up with such a short, pithy saying, such a wonderfully witty concept that summed up this dramatic love concept that he had it written on his wall in his bedroom in gold. And ever since, it's been known as the golden rule. And that's where we got it from. Moving on. Verse 13. If anyone asks you what you learned at church, there you go. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus is about to turn the corner into some of the most severe teaching in all the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where it gets ugly. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. What did you just hear? Here's what I heard. Most people are going to hell. Do you hear anything else? That's a pretty rough concept. Most are going to burn eternally. Ouch. I don't know what you want to spin it. I don't want to know what positive thing you're going to say about it, but that's what I heard. I heard majority burn, minority heaven. And I don't know if I'm okay with that. Does it matter if I'm okay with that? Or is that fact? We go back. What does he mean? Enter through the narrow gate. Many have said that narrowness demands at least two things. Number one, it's so narrow you can't walk in as a group. You can't walk in as a herd. You walk in one by one. What does that mean? It means you ain't going to get saved because your parents are saved. It means you're not getting saved because your kids are saved. It doesn't mean you're not going to heaven because your spouse is going to heaven. You will stand alone before Jesus Christ. And he will respond to you individually. We are not going in as a group. The gate is too narrow for that. Secondly, it means that you cannot carry luggage with you. There's no baggage being brought in. You're going to walk in the same way you came into this world with nothing. So I don't know what you tried to amass in this world, but it's not going to be with you. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate, meaning it's really, really easy to get into the other way. 
Matter of fact, you don't even know you're walking in. It's that broad. Broad is the world is the road. The word means spacious or roomy that leads to destruction. And it's super crowded. It's as many enter through it. As a matter of fact, the whole herd of the world is moving in one direction. You don't even have to think too hard. Just follow the crowd and you'll be right there. You could kind of get swept up in the tide. There's going to be fancy lights and everybody's going to be pumped about it because they have no idea that at the end of the road there is destruction. There is total loss. And so everyone begins to run down this road. Don't go that way. He said, but small is the gate. That means very specific. Narrow is the road with clear, rigid boundaries that lead to life. And only a few find it, which means it's hard to see. Now, if you thought that was tough, Luke makes it harder. Keep your finger there and turn with me to Luke 13, 22, page 738. Page 738, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I guess he was kind of catching on to what we're reading. Jesus said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Oops. Now you learned that it's hard to get in. So it cites back again. If Jesus wants everybody saved, why is it so hard? Why is it so narrow? Why? Is there only one way? Well, I would suggest to you that the first call that God did to mankind was extremely broad. The only thing you had to do to be with God was be born. And that's not super hard for the person being born. What do you mean? I'm talking about Eden. Talking about when Adam and Eve are created, there's God right there in the perfect scenario. He's hanging out with them. Everything's perfect. It's just like heaven. Things are fantastic. And things could have kept going like that if we would have only done what God asked us to do. All we had to do was be born and we would be right in the middle of God's blessings and grace. But what did we do? We rebelled. Well, we got kicked out and the world began to spiral into chaos and sin entered the world. And now... We are a group of rebels. The wide call to his children now had to become the narrow call to get rebels back. As a matter of fact, what makes it so difficult is not God's demands, but because we don't want to lay our guns down and wave a white flag. Is surrender hard or easy? All depends on what you're talking about. Are you talking about raising your hand? Is that hard? No. It's what it stands for. That's why few will go. I heard one man talk about this and he said, everyone cries out. Why has it got to be so specific? Why has it got to be so specific? Why is there only one way? He said, because only one savior showed up to save us. And when he's standing in line, he's looking around going, why is it so narrow? Because nobody else is here. So it's either my way or no one saves you. That's it. I'm not trying to be narrow and rude. I'm trying to tell you, I'm your only gate. There is only one way to heaven. Are we all clear on that? 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So please, let me say something very clearly. In my presence, do not ever say all religions lead to heaven. What an asinine statement. Don't ever use that around me. Why? You just insulted every religion of the world. You go ahead. Go ask a solid Muslim. Go ask somebody that's solid in Islam. Hey, do all roads lead to heaven? What are they going to tell you? What are you, stupid? Of course not. There is one road. See, they are very clear on what they believe. I'm very clear on what I believe. I may be in the wrong religion, but I'm not stupid enough to believe that they all get there. I want to be stupid in very narrow areas. (laughs) No, 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 no. Jesus never gave you the right to pick out and say that all religions lead to heaven. They do not. Only Jesus leads to heaven, period. So, are we in or are we out? You know, Lance, you're trying to scare me. You better believe I'm trying to scare you because this terrifies me and we ain't done yet. On this road, there are going to be people that are going to try to mess with you. That's in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. Now, in the early church, there were legitimate prophets. It was before they had the New Testament written down. And people would travel around as a roving band, and they would tell you God's revelation. They would say, and God said this, period. Because God was still speaking through common man like that. But then, of course, those people became pretty well known. If you're speaking for God, that's a big deal. And so they got pretty popular. So sure enough, it would attract bogus people that would want that title, too. And they began to sneak in and nobody could quite tell who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. So he said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Well, there's the obvious metaphor of we are the flock. We are the sheep. And they come in looking just like us, but they're trying to devour us. That's obvious. But the part that may not be obvious is that in the Old Testament, when you were a prophet, you wore a certain garment that kind of made you stick out. It was known as, quote, a hairy garment. It was kind of like the mantle that was rolled up that was passed between Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet. There was a special coat that mostly you would wear Normal people would wear the hide on the outside and the fuzzy part on the inside for comfort. The prophets would turn it inside out and they would wear kind of this hardcore hairy garment on the outside so people could tell them as a prophet. It was kind of their dress code. He said they're coming in all the right clothing, but you've got to sort out whether they're legitimate or not. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Here's the thing about fruit. When you're driving down the road, you look around, and all trees kind of look the same. If you're like me and completely clueless to botany, I have no idea what a tree is or what a tree's not. I go, gosh, I wonder what kind of tree that is. Everyone else, it's obvious, not to me. Sure enough, you have no idea. But the minute it produces fruit, even the dumbest person can go, oh, it's an apple tree. So inevitably, the, the tree will always give itself away by what? The fruit it produces. Well, in the same way, so will teachers. And you have to examine what teachers say 
and their actions of their life and what they produce to see whether they're good or bad. Now, the problem with that is fruit takes time. And so for a long time, there's just a bunch of trees hanging around together and we're not sure who's legit and who's not. But eventually you're going to know. And that's when you make your determinations. And then we hit the scariest verse in the Bible, in my opinion. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name, drive out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Ouch. Now, we would like to make ourselves feel better and read that and go, oh, they're evildoers. So clearly they were only speaking it and not living it. Really? How many demons have you cast out recently? Huh? You've done a lot of prophecy? Because you know what? Only the apostles were doing that kind of stuff and the close disciples of Christ. So you look back and you go, wait a second. We're not doing many miracles in his name. In other words, as far as actions, as far as what they're doing, they have us blown away. For a long time, Jesus has been hitting on this idea. Don't just be hearers of the word, doers of the word. Do what I tell you. Well, they were doing some pretty dramatic stuff in his name and they were not going. You go, well, they didn't recognize him as, as Lord. Really? Then why did they just say Lord, Lord twice? Kyrie, Kyrie in Greek. It means master, master. They are pretty darn clear as to who he is. You go, well, no, that's just a common word. You would use that for anyone of higher social status. It's just the word, sir. Then why are you using it of a common Galilean nobody if you don't think he's the Messiah? That doesn't make sense. They know who he is and they're doing more than we're doing. And they're not going to heaven. That's got to begin to make all the disciples shudder. Because they begin to examine, well, wait a second, what does that mean for me? Notice he didn't say, you never knew me. He didn't say that. What did he say? I never knew you. Meaning you know all about me. Demons know all about me. That's not impressive. I didn't know you. No is not just no facts. No means to know intimately, to have a relationship. That's why Christians are on this big bandwagon of, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? A lot of people get irritated by that. What do you mean? I mean, does he know you? Do you know him? Because that's all that really matters. Because if you know him, if you love him, then you will fulfill his commands, the Bible says. It all hinges on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that is the make or break move. So what are we going to do with that? He said, oh, by the way, even the stuff that you guys are building may not last. And he closes with this, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, Luke 6 adds, he dug deep down to the bedrock and began building his foundation there. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. Of course, we know Jesus is the rock. Are we all clear on that part? That's pretty obvious. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And its destruction was whole. Why in the world would anyone build on sand? I mean, just practically speaking, you don't have to be an engineering major to realize that that's not pretty, that's not really wise, right? Why would you build your house on sand? I can only think of two reasons. Hurry and ease. Because if I have to dig down to bedrock, I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of energy. So you know what? I'm going to find a big wide place. And you know what? I'm not seeing any obvious danger. So whatever. There's not going to be a storm. It's not a big deal. Let's just lay it down here and get moving because we have life to do. Right? Welcome to American Christianity. I'm not seeing any threats. What are you talking about? We're in a free society. There's no real hardship here. So let's just get it done, man. Come on. All right. It's on my agenda. Go to Walmart, get saved, walk the dog. Come on. Let's just add Jesus on. Let's go, 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 go. I don't got time to sit there. Me, 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 whatever. All right. I get it. You want to talk more Bible study. Okay, fine. I just want to move forward. Let's get saved and get out of here. Let's go. Really? Really? That's how we're going to do it, right? So that's how you dig down to bedrock, is it? You know, I always joke about being the hardest pastor in the world to get saved around, right? Because I'm like, don't walk up here. <laughs> don't get saved. Don't raise your hand. Think about it. Go home. Think about it, right? You know, all the other pastors are like, get saved now. I'm like, no, <laughs> right? Why? Because of this. The problem with the Old Testament false prophets was they were promising hope where there was no hope. They were promising peace where there was no peace. And that's what Jeremiah had to battle. They would run around and tell everybody what they wanted to hear. Not here. Here, I tell you the truth. We're dealing with eternity. And you don't have to impress me. I'm already snowed. I think you're great. I think you're awesome. I think you're all saved. And if it was up to me, hey, let's all go to heaven. But I'm not your savior. Jesus is. He's the only one that matters. So I don't know if you're legit or not. That's between you and him. And I'm not interested in you responding with emotion. I'm not interested in you responding because you like the message. Man, just to buy a car, you got to think about it for two years. So what in the world are we doing with eternity? No, you examine it. You dig down. You figure out, is this or is this not true? If it is true, you stake your life, your family, your eternity on it. And you do not move. Listen, this stuff rattles my core. And I have many sleepless nights wondering if I have lost my way. And so uh, every day I have to have some type of reminder. And praise the Lord, I'm paranoid, so it works out well. (laughs) That I got to a fresh run and grab onto the hem of Jesus' garment and said, Save me, O wretched man that I am. I don't want to play a game. I don't have that kind of time and I don't have that kind of energy. This ain't no club. This is Christianity. So I close with this question. Are you legitimate? He closed with this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. It's a strong verb. It's better translated dumbfounded, astounded. 
and his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Are you legitimate? I don't know. Am I legitimate? I don't know. But I will spend my whole life clinging to my Christ because he's the only shot I've got. I don't want to promise you peace. Only unless I know there's peace. So are you legitimate? Are you in? Or are you playing a game? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is too great for me to handle. Lord, your words scare me. Don't let us miss the way. We are clamoring to examine your word to make sure that we are on the right path. You've said it before us. We chase after you where you are. We want to be. We ask that you would save us afresh, that you would cleanse us from all iniquity, that you would allow us to be your children as you promised that we could be if we call out upon you. Your word over and over again says that if we seek, if we chase after you, we will find you. And we are chasing after you today. Make us the children that please you. Make us acceptable in your sight. And Lord, help us to begin to examine ourselves rightly. For Father, let all of the what the world has to offer fail, fall away and pale in comparison. And set us on the right and sturdy path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.